Hello, 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 good day, and welcome to another episode of After School History. I am, as always, your genial host, Anthony J. Ashitino. And I do want to apologize. I know I'm a couple of days behind on the podcast. It's uh, now Wednesday, and I do try and put them out on Sunday. Um, I was rather under the weather. I don't know, all of a sudden, uh, the the weather has changed here in uh, the lovely state of New Jersey, and with it, it, allergies, and it's just a bunch of stuff, and I got hit with that, and then my voice went out. Anyway, I won't... uh, I won't take up your time with all the details, but I, I, did, uh, I did get hit pretty hard, uh, but I am now fine. Now, hopefully my voice sounds as good as I think it does, the melodious tones uh, coming out. So anyway, um, I, I, today I was thinking, what, what do I talk about here? There are a lot of things I wanted to talk about. Um, the obvious one is to continue talking about what's going on in the United States. Now, in the United States and around the world, mind you, okay, um, there are protests going on uh, all over the world right now um, because of, of, you know, the issues in the United States. I mean, in the Bundesliga, I was really thrilled, thrilled to see uh, numerous teams uh, taking a knee before the games, players wearing things, this is Black Lives Matter, um, Players pulling their shirts up after scoring, you know, and this, you know, things about justice for George Floyd. I mean, it's just uh, fantastic. Um, you know, it's really, it's heartening that people uh, elsewhere. In London, um, I was reading that they, I believe it was London, uh, that they, they tore down a crowd, tore down a statue of a slave trader and tossed it into the river. And I was, I was like, you know, good. In the United States, I just read today, two statues of Christopher Columbus have been beheaded. Um, you know, I, I mean, not exactly tied into Black Lives Matter, but if you had listened to my podcast earlier about Christopher Columbus, uh, why Columbus Day wasn't great, um, I get it. You know what? And, and, and statues being torn down all over. You see all over the world these things are going on. And I think that it's really just people have gotten completely fed up with it. But that's exactly what I wanted to talk about today, because you know what, the the protests are, I know this is going to sound crazy, the protests are the easy part. You know, in history, we always say winning the war tends to end up being the easy part. Winning the peace, that's the difficult thing. Look at World War I. I'm not saying for a moment World War I was easy, but World War I ended up finishing off the way, and again, you could you could go listen to my podcast about that. I, I'm, it's a little bit of a, I'm, I'm pumping my own stuff right now a little bit. That's okay. I know you guys love it. So, um, but I mean, the aftermath of World War One, uh, you know, the Treaty of Versailles was an absolute, you know, a, a you know what show. It was a disaster. You know, the the Allies were fighting with one another over what to do. There was no consideration, unlike there had been. Uh, you know, in the Peace of Vienna and other places, there's no consideration for the losing sides. Um, you know, it was just, it was, it was, it was terrible. And it ended up opening the door for 20 years later to have, uh, you know, uh, the World War One Act Two, uh, which is World War Two, uh, even more destructive and devastating war. So 
My thing is this. The protests, you know, everyone's fired up. People are going to protest. There's protests all over the country right now in the United States. I mean, I'm not talking about just major cities. There are minor cities that are having protests. Um, you know, even if it's only a few hundred people, people are marching. They're sending messages, you know, all over the country. We stand with you or with you. The real question then becomes the following. So what in the devil are we going to do about this? Like the protesting, okay, you're protesting, you're upset. But what do you want out of this? Well, we want, we want reform for the police. We want, there's a lot of things being thrown out. I'm going to put forward the following for you, my beloved listeners. And um, if you happen to be friends with any senators or representatives, uh, by all means, please forward this over to them. I'm available uh, my school year ends on Monday, uh, so if any of them want to talk to me, you know, I can, can drive down to Washington or Trenton, you know, or wherever they want to meet up. I'm going to put forward that there are three major avenues that have to be addressed here, and they are as follows. Number one, police reform. Now, there are many people, especially on the extreme left, who are talking about abolishing the police. Abolishing the police forces, okay? That's not going to happen, okay? It's not going to happen for a few reasons. And I know you could probably put, well, this one place did it. Um, you still do need the ability of people, you, you need some kind of a governmental force to be able to enforce laws within a territory, okay? Um, so that's one thing. However, then the phrase comes up, defunding the police, okay? Now, defunding the police is not on the basis what it really means. You're listening to defunding the police, and you're thinking, oh, we're going to take all the money away from the police. No, 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 no. That's not the case. When we, when we analyze the police in the United States of America have essentially become at this point, and, I, and I'm only, I can only speak for the United States because I am not terribly familiar with the police forces of other nations. But there's been an ongoing, there's been an ongoing kind of mission creep where the police have become more and more militarized over the years. I mean, you've got police departments with ABVs, you've got police departments with you know, multiple helicopters, you know, police coming out in full tactical, uh, you know, military wear. And, and this has been promoted by the federal government in the United States. They've given the police good cut rate prices, the police departments on these things. I, I really don't care where you are. My argument is the police departments do not need to have half tracks, okay, driving down uh, any of the roads, all right? Um, so my thing about defunding, it's not really defunding. I would prefer that we use the word a reallocation of resources. And here's what I mean by that. The overwhelming majority of situations when it comes to complaints that the police are called upon to handle end up being situations that can be de-escalated, okay? Um, one of the great myths we have here is that it's constant. you know, everyone immediately pulls a gun out on a cop. The reality is this. Most people, okay, most, the overwhelming majority of people get, they react very differently to a police officer than they did anyone else because they know that cops, um, you, you can't just, 
you can't hit a cop. You know, if I show up uh, to say, hey, what's going on? And you say, nothing, get out of here. And I say, no, I'm not leaving until, you know, I, I heard someone yelling and, well, none of your business. And we have a fight. Okay. Might get brought up on charges. I mean, trespass is that. If you push a cop or hit a cop, you are in very serious legal trouble in the United States. So the natural reaction for people is not to. Plus, the officer shows up in a uniform. It, it just sends a message. Now, here's what I'm saying. Instead of having cops show up all the time, you know, ready to draw the gun, most people, you can simply have someone talking to them, de-escalate the situation. You got a couple of guys can separate them. It doesn't have to be weapons present. What you really need, plus besides which you need people who can talk to people, many of these cases you're dealing with people who have some degree of mental illness, maybe someone who's high on drugs, okay? Now, I'm not saying it's a good thing to be high on drugs, don't get me wrong, and I'm not saying that that's an excuse for what you do. I remember, oh God, it was years ago teaching, um, any kid, uh, and uh, you know, I'm not going to mention names, but the bottom line is that you know, he had been absent for a while, it was quiet, and he'd been absent for a, a while, and I said to one of the kids, hey, did so you know where so-and-so is? And one of my students was just, he was, oh, Mr. A, I'm going to see him anymore. I was like, what, what do you mean? He goes, yeah, well, he, he killed someone. I was like, my God, what, what, what happened? So I, I'm not going to go through the details, but the bottom line was he was apparently completely high on drugs. And I had several students who were like, well, you know, it really wasn't his fault because, you know, he's a nice kid when he's not really high on drugs and everything. And I was like, I, I get it. He was a really nice kid in school when he wasn't high, but that's not an excuse. But what a lot of these people need more than prison time is they need some kinds of rehabilitation. And we need more access to mental health advocacy. And this is going to segue into part two of Anthony J. Eschettino's How I'm Going to Completely Reform the System. Judiciary Reform, the Justice System. We have... Uh, you, it's not the courts themselves, although it partly is. I'm trying to find a way to blame people without blaming them and casting a pal over it. I mean, certainly compared to other countries, the United States does have a very good justice system. And especially if you're wealthy, I mean, heck, you can get away with murder, uh, quite literally, if you've got a lot of money. However, the problem in the justice system in the United States is manifold, and here's why. First of all, you have all of these minimum sentencing guidelines, okay, in the effort to be tough on crime. What do we do? We say, oh, you did this, you get a minimum sentence of this many years in jail. Now, here's the thing. When someone goes to jail, okay, for however long, they come out and it's on their, you know, as we'd say, their permanent record. It makes it a lot more difficult to get jobs, okay? And it casts a stigma on you, all right? People that go, oh, this person went to jail. You know, it's just like, well, for what? I mean, there are things you could go to jail for that, you know, m most people might not think are as big of a deal, but because it was mandatory, okay? Um, and the other thing in the United States is that uh, prosecutors, and again, this is not meant to be an aspersion on all prosecutors in the United States. Just like me talking about police is not meant to be an aspersion on all police. But here's the thing. Prosecutors earn their bread and butter, okay, 
by getting convictions. And conviction rates depend upon whether or not they can either get you to accept a deal or they can convict you in court. So what ends up happening in the United States is that you commit a crime. and Or let's say you're even accused of a crime. They, let's say Anthony J. Eschettino, I always use myself in his example because I never want to use anyone else. I said, let's say I'm accused of something that I know I didn't do. But the prosecutors are coming out and they're like, listen, we've got, you know, they, they start laying out all of this circumstantial evidence. And maybe I don't have the money to afford a top, top notch lawyer. Okay. Then the United States has always said when you're facing any kind of serious jail time, I don't care if you have to, you know, beg, borrow, plead, steal, mortgage the house, um, you know, mortgage park place and boardwalk. You have to get the best possible lawyer that money can buy and the best person can do it because that's the difference if you go to jail or not. So the, the prosecutor comes up and says, listen, here's the deal, Mr. Ashitino. If we go to court, you're looking at with the 15 charges we've thrown at you, including, you know, that you winked at the police officer by accident. Not my eye was twitching because, you know, they had a gun drawn. Nope, you were winking. Okay, so you're going to go to jail for uh, 5 to 15 years. You could be going to jail for up to 15 years. But if you take a plea deal, we will have you where basically you go to jail for one year and you'll be out in two months through you know, uh, we'll, we'll make work so that you'll actually only serve two months. You'll be on probation for eight months, blah, blah, blah. Now, even if I'm not guilty, I might know for a fact, which I would hope you would know if you didn't do a crime, <clears throat> I might know I'm not guilty. And I might be like, but this is not fair. I'm not guilty. But what am I going to do? Am I going to take the chance that I could go to jail for 15 years? Okay. Or am I going to be like, you know what? I'll take two months. Or even better, a suspended sentence. Be like, well, listen, we'll just make it a six-month suspended sentence. You're on probation. You take the deal because you don't want to take the chance that, you know, I go into the courtroom and you get a couple of people on that jury that look at me and go, man, you know, I, don't, I don't like that guy's hair. Or he looks like, you know, my sister-in-law's ex-boyfriend's roommate who was a jerk. You never know with a trial. And the, you, they can make it a good prosecutor can really make even circumstantial evidence look like you, you, know, you, you, you were on videotape doing it. So that's what prosecutors end up getting. Now, we have this situation, and nobody, we don't want to talk about the fact that especially poor people in the United States, okay, they're the ones most likely to be victims of this because they don't have the ability to get a lawyer. And I'm not saying the public defenders... Uh, for those of you who, who are from other countries and don't know, in the United States, you know, if you've watched any of the legal shows, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in the court of law. You have the right to an attorney. If, one, if you cannot afford one, one will be provided to you by the state. The problem is that public defenders are people who take on, you know, 15 cases. They don't have the resources. Whereas if you get one of these big shot attorneys, not only are they doing the research, but they've got a whole field of paralegals. They've got other lawyers working for them. They can put a team together. You know, if you've got $50,000, if you've got $100,000, um, you know, you can end up having the state apologize to you at the end of the day 
It's like, oh, well, we have a, you know, we have overwhelming evidence of me committing this crime. And, you know, your, your legal team can be like, we would like a full apology from the state and, uh, you know, maybe some money. Now, obviously, I'm exaggerating a little, but that's the way it is. And the problem is that the justice system in this country is simply based around, especially now, we're getting all of what we call these for-profit jails, okay? That the state is guaranteeing things. This is a major moneymaker. So, of course, the incentive is to keep sending people to jail because you're making money off of it. So what's happening is the people that own or own stocks in these private jails, they're begging the legislatures. They're coming up to the, the senators and, and the representatives, and they're like, hey, listen, you know, uh, here's a nice fat donation for your campaign. We want you to be tough on crime. And that's the United States... Everyone wants to be tough on crime. Oh, I'm tough on crime. I'm tough on crime. You're not really tough on crime. What you're doing is you're basically sandbagging people who don't have the financial resources to fight off any kind of accusation, true or not, okay? Uh, and then what you're doing is you're putting them in jail, so then they get out of jail after a few years or whatever it is, and they can't get a decent job, and people are treating them like a pariah. And then usually what ends up happening is they end up getting sucked right back into crime, whatever it is, okay? And, and that's, for the, for the state, that's perfect, okay? Because it guarantees something. That's one of the things that we, we have this saying, you know, the school-to-prison pipeline. It's sick. It's very sick and it's very sad. But if you look this up, there's a lot of stuff online about it in the United States where basically they count on being able to get a lot of young men, especially a lot of young minority men, okay, right out of school, you know, they pop them for stuff. They pop them for stupid stuff, okay? You know, you had marijuana on you. Well, that now you're already on the list. And then, you know, all of a sudden you can get a job, so you end up having to do some stuff on the side. And then the next thing you know, you're going to jail for a little while, Okay. And then you get out of jail, and again, it just becomes this kind of revolving door. That's why you end up having people keep going back in. Now, that's great for these private prisons and stuff, uh, and even for the prison system, because that's money. Hey, listen, we need more prisons. We need more guards. We need more you know, people to do stuff. So it's an entire system that is, is based upon monetizing crime in this country, on behalf of the state. The judicial system in this country has to change. It has to change radically because we put more people, the United States, um, I'm not sure if this year it's still the same, probably is. We put more people in jail as a percentage of the population than basically any other country in the world, okay? Um, and, and the percentages of people that go into jail, a, a huge percent ends up being minority, okay? And you can even see it today. I mean, I've been disgusted by a lot of the stuff I've been reading, but, you know, people are trying to, you know, there's always the, you blame the victim, you attack the victim, okay? So you want to be like, you know, uh, like when Trayvon Martin was was murdered, um, and I don't care what the courts say, he was murdered, but the bottom line, well, there was a picture of him smoking, might have been marijuana, oh, well, it's like, oh, okay, so smoking marijuana means that he deserved to be killed. You know, George Floyd, they're trying to take this poor guy. This poor guy is barely, is barely been in the ground. And already, well, you know, there were things he did in the past. Okay, 
So that justifies the fact that he was murdered uh, for a, a, an alleged $20, you know, counterfeit bill. This is the problem, you know, and, and what happens is a lot of the times the prosecutors and other people are, they're in bed with the police department. And what I mean by that is the prosecutors, especially the local prosecutors, they rely on the police for their cases. The police give the tickets. This generates money for the township. Then the police show up and they testify on behalf of the prosecutors. So prosecutors don't like to get on the bad side of police. Okay, um, so if there's a question, if there's an allegation of wrongdoing, all of a sudden it becomes, mm, well, you know, I mean, do we really want to aggravate the police department here because we're going to need them to provide us with evidence in the future and all this other stuff? And that's why, for example, in the beginning in Minneapolis, after George Floyd was murdered, you had a situation where the prosecutor charged uh, the, the police officer with third degree murder, um, which, you know, you can, you can accidentally do that this evening, you know, do something that ends up getting you a third degree murder and manslaughter and hadn't arrested any of the other officers who stood by, uh, uh, two of whom were holding Mr. Floyd down and one of whom was basically telling everyone else to get the heck back. And so it had to go to the state, the attorney general of the state in order to get some serious charges, second-degree murder, and also to charge uh, all of the other officers to have them arrested. And, uh, you know, to be honest, I really felt, and I'm not a lawyer, you know, I have, I have pretended to be on uh, some occasions, uh, not, not officially, of course, just when I was, you know, trying to make myself look good. Um, that's a joke. Anyway, uh, but, you know, I say the same thing like when I'm like, you know, I'm not a doctor, but I have pretended to be at times. Uh, but the bottom line is that I, I do know the law fairly well. Um, you know, as a historian, you know, I'm very big into reading about different, you know, cases, not only in Supreme Courts, but in, in illegal cases around. You know, I've coached a mock trial team uh, for a few years. And I, I do, you know, I'm, I'm very well read on it. I like to read up on it. And I do believe that there was absolute premeditation here. Um, you know, there's a lot of evidence about their past together. Um, I think he, there was definitely premeditation. But you know what? I'm, I'm not making the charges, and I'm not, uh, I don't have to adjudicate any of this stuff. So we will see what happens. Now, this leads us to the third, the third point. And that point is something very near and dear to me, and this is something which, unlike the other two points, because I'm not a cop, and I'm not a lawyer, but I am a teacher, and I can speak about education, okay? And I can speak about education system in this country. And I could talk about how we really do need to change things. Um, school districts are underfunded. We place way too much emphasis on stupid things like standardized testing. All of a sudden now, because of coronavirus, so many colleges are like, oh, well, we just won't pay attention to the... Uh, uh, you know, the SAT, ACT, this, this is, um, in the United States, we have these uh, major tests that you basically take uh, senior year, the, your final year of high school before going to college. Uh, and based on how well you score, like some colleges are basically like, you know, if you don't, when I was going to college, I think today it's 2400. I don't know if they've changed it. They changed it back and forth. When I was going to school, 
the top grade you could get was a 1600, 1600 on your score. So, you know, it, obviously, if you wanted to go to a top, top college, uh, they had high demands. They'd be like, you yeah, know, if, if you didn't get a 1400, 1500, don't even bother, uh, you know, sending, wasting money on the check, uh, you know, on the, I'm sorry, <laughs> on the stamp. Uh, you know, nowadays everything's online. You don't have stamps anymore. But the, my point is that all of a sudden now the college is like, oh, well, we don't need this. Well, you never needed it. Okay, a standardized test doesn't really tell you anything. It tells you how good someone is at test taking on a particular day under particular circumstances. Okay, and that's that. And the tests themselves are very, you know, it's like, well, you don't have to answer everything. If you answer, if you try and answer something and you get it wrong, you lose points. But if you don't answer, you don't lose points. It does. It's just, it's ridiculous. Okay, what you really need to be doing is you need to be looking at students on a holistic level. You need to be doing interviews. And there are there are schools who, if you're applying to the school, you do an inter, you, you know, you get an interview. Uh, many times with with uh, alumni of the school, they will set something up. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna interview you because they want to get to know you. They want to get they want to get to know you as a person, not just as a number. I remember <laughs> I went to Rutgers, and those of you who know me know I'm. A huge fan of Rutgers University. I did my undergraduate degree at Rutgers New Brunswick, and I did my master's degree at Rutgers Newark. Uh, both schools, excellent schools. But, you know, Rutgers is a very, very big university. So, you know, when you, when you went to get something done, you were not, I was not Anthony J. Eschettino. Um, You know, I was, you know, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Obviously, that's not my social security number, but. That for a time, they put your social security number as your school ID number, which is illegal, but, you know, they did it for a long time. Now they're changing it. But that would be it. You'd get up there. They didn't ask you your name. They didn't care what your name was. This is what your ID number, because that's who you were. And they were a big school. Smaller colleges, you know, you have maybe a guidance counselor that you can go to and be like, hey, oh, hey, Anthony, what's going on? You know, how's this doing? How's that doing? An advisor. Uh, Rutgers is not like that. So if you can't handle... That large school system. Now, I mean, the plus side about it is Rutgers has every major you could want, all subject matter, phenomenal resources. I mean, it's just, you know, law school is tremendous. Their science uh, departments over uh, in New Brunswick and Bush campus, tremendous stuff. Um, So, but the thing is with education, you know, we talk about things here and we talk about how do we get students to succeed because education is the key to lifting individuals out of poverty. Always has been, always will be. All right, the number one cause of poverty, and I actually, <laughs> I had to make a comment about this today. Uh, someone on TikTok was talking about it, and I, I liked it, and I said, you know what, you hit the nail on the head. Someone did one of these, it was like, oh, you know, the, the number one reason for poverty is lack of education. It's like, no, the number one reason for poverty is you're born into it. It's extremely difficult to actually make that break out of your social class uh, or your economic class and social to a degree. And here's why. Because if you're born into poverty, the odds are you're probably going to a school district in an impoverished location. We know through studies that the number one um, the number one thing about how well students will learn in a class is class size. Okay? We've, there have been many studies that have shown that. 
the smaller the class, the better you have. First of all, you have much more interaction between the teachers and the students. Students can't just be in the back dozing off or, you know, shooting craps. That's what makes the difference. Yet there are school districts in New Jersey, in high schools, that have average classes just like 38. How the heck do you learn anything in a class with 38 kids? If you want to, and I get people, well, if you really wanted to learn, you would look. Okay, you're right. Not everyone has that drive. Does that mean we just say, okay, then you know what? You're a failure. Hey, get ready to go right out of high school and into that nice school to prison chain, okay? No. If you could break school class sizes down, you would reach so many more of these students. You would be changing their lives. And as these students came up, they would start with an education. They would start breaking the cycles of poverty, which means that then they're less likely to end up getting into trouble with the law. Okay, They're more likely to become highly productive members of society. And it just, it, it, it just is a complete, you know, it's, it's an inverted, uh, you know, a, a whirlpool there going up. Okay, they'll they'll be more likely to do something. And again, it doesn't have to be college. They could go to a trade school. They could they could become an entrepreneur. They could do so many different things. Okay, but then they do all right, and then they can break out of the the cycle of poverty. Which means if they have any children, guess what? Their kids don't have to be born into poverty. Which means that they then have a much better chance of advancing. Okay, all of this is very basic stuff. Yeah, we don't. We don't do it. Why do we? Why do we have this? Why? Why did I have to teach one time? Uh, you know, in a, in a class of thirty-four students. Okay. Now, I mean, I was lucky at the time. I had um, a, a teaching assistant, uh, and she was fantastic. We were. We, she was a co-teacher. I, I say teaching assistant. It was. It wasn't. She's um, there because we had kids with uh, with IEPs and stuff in the classroom. But, I mean, she, she was a fully certified teacher, and she was great. And we would kind of, you know, I'd be in the back, she'd be in the front, she'd be in the front, I'd be in the back type uh, thing. Um, I think I just said the same thing twice. Anyway, you get the point. But still, 34 kids, you know, it's difficult. And, you know, if one kid starts asking good questions, and you get two or three kids that start asking good questions, and you're like, oh, that's a great point, let me elaborate on that. Now, all of a sudden, you got 10 kids in the back. You know, who are like, you know, sneaking their phones out and, and, you know, searching up whatever on social media. And I don't want to say I blame them. I mean, you know, certainly there's a little blame, but they're just, this is what kids do. Okay. This is even what kids in high school do. You know, and if you haven't taught in a high school, then, you know, you, you don't know what's going on. And, you know, I happen to teach in, in an outstanding uh, school district. You know, they, they do work very hard. Uh, to make things work, um, there's just there are finite resources. But this is the type of thing that I'm talking about. If you could take some of the money away from militarizing the police, okay, and you could take some of the money away from creating these private prisons, and you could put that money into education, okay, hiring more teachers, building more school buildings, all right. And I mean, I'm, I'm all against waste, you know, I, but to be honest with you, that's another thing. That's like the, the old trope that they, people like to bring out. It's like, well, you know, all of X type of people 
you know, are this type of thing, the stereotypes that come, oh, these types of people are on welfare, this type of people, they're in gangs, these guys are all in the mafia, blah, blah, blah. All of it is 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 just BS. It's ridiculous, to be very frank, okay? Um, you know, you these kids, they are very intelligent kids. They can reach different levels, uh, and there isn't a lot of waste in the schools. It's just that what, what we really need is we need more schools and we need smaller classrooms. We need more teachers. That's what you need. You cut those classroom sizes down, you watch. You watch how things go up. And the other thing I would like to just say, because it's a personal thing of mine, and I'm going to say it because this is my podcast and I can, the teaching to the test has got to end. It's got to end. Okay. If you don't know what that means, what that means is, for example, now I teach social studies. We have no standardized tests in social studies. So nobody really cares about, you know, this, aside from my, my supervisor and, you know, principal and a couple of other people. But for the most part, no one cares. Now, in language arts and maths, you have tests at the end of every year. And how well your students do on those tests determines how successful you are as a teacher. Seriously, you actually get graded as part of being a teacher. And I know some people will be like, well, you should. They should have to perform. It's like, okay, but here's the problem. You want to teach certain things. For example, you know, in social studies, uh, you know, I love getting off topic sometimes when it's a good reason. And we talk about fun stuff and, you know, we talk about, you know, like uh, in the 60s and it's like, oh, man. And then, you know, Marilyn Monroe, you know, who was she married to? And the kids get into it. And that's probably, you know, on a standardized test, they probably wouldn't be like, please name Marilyn Monroe's husbands in chronological order. But the kids get into that. And then while they're into that, I'm like, oh, yeah, you know. And then the rumor was she was with John F. Kennedy. Oh, by the way, let's talk about Kennedy a little bit. Now, all of a sudden, the kids are like, all right, let's talk about Kennedy here. Yeah. Next thing you know, I've got a full-on discussion about the Bay of Pigs invasion, the Cuban Missile Crisis, okay? And they didn't even realize they got suckered into this very academic discussion because they were just focusing on, oh, man, we're going to find out more about Marilyn Monroe here. No. See, but if I have to teach to the test, meaning if they're like, listen, these are the types of questions that are going to be on the test, stop talking about anything that's not on the test. Okay? You only need, they only need to know the things on the test. And that's ridiculous. And, you know, that's where it really goes to. It really becomes a case of, you know, in math and, and language arts, these teachers, they, they have to just teach to the test. They can't take time making things more fun. I mean, they can try. But at the end of the day, it has to come back around to the test because those test scores determine whether the state's going to give you any more money or, you know, whether you're a decent district. And it's dumb. I mean, I've known highly intelligent people that don't do great. And I've known people that, you know, couldn't, couldn't tie their shoelace and answer a question at the same time, but scored ridiculously high on tests. So... You know, I understand that testing, you know, um, assessments are important in education, but at the end of the day, making them the big thing and making that the only thing that these schools and then colleges look at is simply ridiculous. So we have to do that. So again, to sum up, this is what we should be looking at as a country in the United States. Again, I can only speak for the place I live. 
we should be looking at, number one, reforming our police, okay? Not abolishing the police necessarily, but we should definitely be looking at reforming things and a redistribution of the money that goes into more uh, people who are trained in, in mental health and trained in de-escalation of events, more training of police officers, um, absolutely. Number two, we need a massive reform of our judicial system, of the justice system, rather. Okay, we, we have to. We, th- this is just as important, because if you have one and you don't have the other, you've really done nothing, okay? As I said before to one of my best friends in the world, um, <clears throat> it's kind of like, you know, when you're out on the field, the first thing, if someone, you know, gashes their leg open, the first thing you do is immediately try and apply pressure to stop the bleeding. But then once you stop the bleeding, you have to take them and get the wound cleaned up and you have to maybe get stitches. If you don't do that, you're going to end up, you know, just with a nasty scar there in place and it's not really going to be much better. Probably get infected. And then the third thing, like I said, and, and this is really something we should be working on simultaneously, education reform in this country has to happen. We have to look at lowering students in a class, getting more teachers, and stopping making students' entire value as a student based upon one test that they take. Those of you who live in a country with uh, what is it, the, the A and the O levels in, in a lot of countries that were uh, you know former British colonies, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, one test shouldn't define your worth as a, a human being and, you know, determine what you're going to do with your life. Anyway, so other than that, we're waiting to see what else goes on here. There's been a lot of back and forth. Um, I know the Democrats in the United States have put some legislation forward. I uh, highly doubt that'll go anywhere. The Senate uh, is seeming to not be interested in it. Uh, we're rapidly approaching November. I know people are going to be like, oh my God, you know, Ashitino, it's only, you know, June Yeah, well, you know, that time goes by quickly. And we will soon be there where American people will get to go and, uh, and vote. And uh, in Georgia last night, they had a primary election. And ironically, in all of the urban districts, in all of the places where there were heavy amounts of minorities, um, they had massive lines, four hours to vote. Uh, people didn't get their voting absentee ballot, the machines screwed up. In some cases, there was only one machine working for like 10,000 people type stuff. Uh, But in areas that were more well-off and that had a much higher percentage of um, (coughs) white people, there were no lines. People were in and out in 10 minutes. Voting machines seemed to work. Okay, This uh, this is what we call a trial run to see if, they, if people can get away with making it extremely difficult for some people in this country to vote. And I do believe, as I've said before, that that is definitely in the cards. We'll talk more about that at another time. I'll go over it. I don't believe I've done it before. Um, it's fascinating. After doing so many episodes, I, you know, like almost 40 episodes here, I think, that sometimes I'm like, wait, did I talk about that before? But I'll talk about voter suppression in the United States and the, and the fun ways that that gets done. But that's for another time. For now... I want to leave you all with those thoughts of mine uh, about how we change things. I hope that you are all doing well. I hope you continue to do well. Please stay safe. I know that all the countries are opening up again. Uh, Stay safe. And uh, like I said, please feel free to send anything to me. Antonius Optimus.
my my code on Instagram, uh, and you know you can always comment on anything on the Anchor app. Leave a voice message for me. Until then, take care, and we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye.